Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Junkies, welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to be a medical doctor specializing in optimizing your skin and sexual health, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is an anti-aging and regenerative medical physician with an expertise in stem cells, sexual longevity, and skin health. But before I introduce you to Dr. Amy Killen, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's newsletter that features career advice, insights, and inspiration you likely won't find anywhere else. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug or your cold brew and take a jug of your wine because <laughs> it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my wonderful next guest is Dr. Amy Killen, the medical director and partner of preventative medicine, or she's rather the medical director of preventative medicine and partner at BioRestoration. She is also the Regenerative Medical Director and Physician at Doceri Medical. And Dr. Killen is the Course Director of Regenerative Injections for Skin and Sexual Health at Apex Biologics, that is, for physicians who want to get into this space. Dr. Killen has spoken internationally on topics surrounding stem cells, sexual longevity, and skin health. Upon gaining a fellowship in anti-aging and regenerative medicine, Dr. Killen made it her goal to help others live longer and healthier lives through her specialty in aesthetics and sexual optimization. Prior to getting into this field, into this part of the field, Dr. Killen spent over seven years, I think it was more like 10 all told, as an emergency room physician, Dr. Dylan, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am caffeinated and I'm so ready to go. I'm excited to talk to you. What a fun, what a fun thing this is. <laughs> Yay. So what kind of coffee do you guys drink at home? I I like a I like a more I you know, I don't have any fancy coffees in the morning. I'll just do a regular home coffee. But I do like to sneak out to Starbucks sometimes and get like a little better version than what I make because I still haven't mastered making a perfect cup of coffee at home, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, I could show you that. It's actually not so difficult and it <laughs> makes a big difference. So before we get into how you got into this field of medicine and how you built your career, Dr. Killen, 
I that's actually more the informational interview part of the time for coffee episode. I thought maybe we could start off with a quick overview of what it means to be a preventative and regenerative regenerative doctor. Yeah, great question. So the the regenerative part is essentially using modalities like stem cell therapies or even lasers or things like that to try to get your body to heal itself. So using sort of these cool sciencey things to get your body to heal itself versus having to take medications or or other or surgeries or things like that. So the integrative and preventative part is essentially trying to prevent you from needing anything in the first place. So I I combine those two together to try to use, you know, lifestyle medicine to use integrative medicine modalities, exercise, nutrition, fitness, stress reduction, things like that to try to help people kind of gain a, a baseline of health. And then once they're there, if they still need some help, then we can use sort of advanced things like stem cells or lasers or peptides or some of these other kinds of cool tricks to help their bodies to repair and regenerate and be even better that way. Yeah. So let's get into the juicy part right now. What is sexual optimization? And what are the biggest complaints that you see in your practice in Utah from the men and women who come to see you? So I see patients from all over the world, which is really nice. I have people like fly in from all different countries, but I tend to treat people that are, you know, probably in the 35 plus age range. And so I'm, I'm typically seeing people who are starting to see some changes in their sex lives because of aging. So, you know, as we age, you know, your blood flow goes down to those areas, the tissues change a little bit. And so some and childbirth and things like that happen. So a lot of times people just aren't having as much fun (laughs) in the bedroom as they used to. And it's not because they have anything wrong with them. It's just that they're, they're aging a little bit. And so we do we try to kind of combat that by helping their bodies to, to repair themselves and to regenerate some of those tissues to make them, you know, a little bit more like when they were 18 or 19 or 25 or whatever that is. So what are people saying? Because I read, I think it was on your website, about 40% of men over the age of 40 have some degree of erectile dysfunction. And this actually I found to be super surprising. The same is true for women over 40. Or maybe it's over 40 at some point in their lives, 40% of women. Right. Yeah, I like 40% of women, you know, describe some kind of sexual dysfunction, whether that's just not, not interest, you know, lack of libido, whether that's arousal problems, orgasmic problems, or pain. For women, there's all different things, you know, that can go on. But it's actually pretty common in women of all ages, really, to have something that bothers them or something that's kind of in the way of them having a really good, powerful kind of sexual experience. So it's more than you think. <laughs> yeah. So are most of the clients who come to see you with sexual optimization needs dealing with ED or are there other manifestations? There are other manifestations, but mostly with the men I have that I'm seeing that I can really help have erectile dysfunction. Or I have a lot of guys who are actually healthy and fit and don't have any problems. This is true for women too, but they're just trying to kind of stay up on it and like prevent things from happening that would be a problem later on. So continue, keep the blood flow going, keep the tissue kind of regenerated. So I get a lot of these sort of biohacker kind of types that will come in and, and we'll get procedures on it, even if they're not actually having any problems. But yeah, ED is the most common actual dysfunction I see in men. And so how do you help these clients? 
you know, it depends. I, I use, I use a, a lot of different things. You know, we look at their hormones. We make sure that they have enough estrogen, testosterone. This is men and women and all the different hormones that can change as we get older. Look at their lifestyle. Are they eating well? Are they exercising? You know, how are they sleeping? Stress? Like all of those things, we don't realize it, but can take a huge toll on our, our sex lives. And then once I get past that, we'll look at other things like using injectables so I can inject various things from stem cells from the patient or exosomes, which are kind of like growth factors, platelet-rich plasma, other things like that into the genitalia. So into the penis, into the vagina, into the clitoris. And I can also use things for at home, like home devices, like shockwave therapy for men or women or, or red light therapy intravaginally for women. So I kind of give them some tools to take home with them to help kind of keep that process going. Peptides are also something I've been using. So it's, it's kind of a whole approach, but trying to really help their bodies to repair themselves without having to take medication for the rest of their lives is the general idea. Do you have any of those tools nearby? I do. I brought some down here so that I can okay, show you. Well, let's show folks what you're talking All about. Right. So I have some home tools. So one of them, this one right here is, this is called the VFIT Plus. And this is an intravaginal red light therapy device. Let's see if I can get it to start. Where basically it's, can you see it? It's like yes, a, again, like a red light therapy. Red light therapy is great for increasing mitochondrial energy production. And this is a great tool to just help increase blood flow to the vagina to help increase collagen production, lubrication, sensation, those kind of things. And you just do it like in your room during a nap for like 12 minutes. And it's like a, it's like a hot, so, hot stone massage for your vagina. It's fantastic. And so actually, I was going to say for our listeners who can't see it, it kind of looks like a vibrator. It does. Yeah. And I've left this on my nightstand many times before people have come to my house and they've gone to my room and probably noticed it. But it's just, a, yeah, it's a vi- very much a vibrator function, but it has a medical purpose also. Got it. Got it. And then for men, I have this fun thing. I don't know if you can see this. And this it looks is- like a rocket ship. It does. This is called the Phoenix. This is the Phoenix Pro. There's a, 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 another version that's black. This one I won't turn on because it's so loud that it actually hurts my ears. It sounds like a jackhammer, but this is actually a low intensity shockwave therapy device for men that helps to increase blood flow to the penis. And it helps to repair problems with like atherosclerosis and plaque and things like that. And it, it essentially really can be helpful for improving erectile dysfunction. You do it like 20 minutes at a time, a few times a week, and, and it's, like a whole, it's like a whole program. But we have machines in our office that do this that are a little stronger, but you all, there's also a home option as well. So with the, the rocket ship one, this how one. does a man use that? Because I get it with the one that looked like a vibrator, yeah. <laughs> but I don't understand how, how that would be used with a penis. So this end of it, so if you imagine this is, my, this is the penis, you essentially are just going to be, this is going to go like this. And this little tiny like bullet thing is going up and down really quickly. And it's taking energy into this and it pushes it into the penis by way of high, high intensity sound waves. And so you essentially treat the entire penis and you treat the deep part of the penis. It's called the cruise, which is the part we don't actually see. But essentially you're just going kind of back and forth around that area and you you know do it for 10 or 15 minutes. And over time, that can actually increase the health of the cells in the penis. It can increase blood flow. It can increase sensitivity. It's, it's actually pretty amazing. And is it painful? It is a little painful. I recommend numbing cream for sure. I have some guys that don't, don't need it, but um, numbing cream is, is helpful. It's a little zippy, a little zingy. Okay. Got it. Got <laughs> it. And how much do they cost? How much do those devices cost? The devices, they range from the, I have a, I have like the basic version in black and I think this one's about $800. So it's not cheap, 
This one I think is more than that. And, or you can go to your doctor and you can get, you can also get a, a series of treatments done through the doctor, like through Gainswave, which is a network of doctors that do it. Those are probably about two or $3,000 though for those treatments as well. So none of this is cheap and none of it's paid for by insurance, but it can be really effective. Oh, I can imagine it could be life-changing. And I know because I checked out your Instagram feed, you have some very funny posts on there. And <laughs> one actually made me laugh out loud. You wrote, sex is like meditation. Everyone says they're doing it often and it's amazing, but nobody really knows what's really going on behind closed doors. Yeah, that's so true. I feel like people are always bragging about how good their meditation is. And I'm always like, am I doing it right? I'm not sure if I'm doing it right. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me they were bragging how great their sex was. Oh, that's true too. That's true too. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So what is driving the dysfunction in our sex lives? I, I spoke to my therapist. She's a mental health therapist. Mm-hmm. And she was saying she thought it was a huge availability and consumption of online porn. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think, especially for younger men, mostly is what I see, but like younger men, if I have a young guy come in with, with erectile dysfunction or sexual dysfunction, I always ask about porn use because it is, that is a major cause of, of, of dysfunction. Just, you know, just seeing those images all the time and you get that dopamine hit and your brain is, you know, your brain's on fire and it's super excited. But the next time you need, you know, more stimulation, more stimulation, like you got to kind of, you're increasing the stimulation and the types of porn that you're watching. And then a real person, they sometimes don't live up to sort of what's on TV, if you will. So I, you know, I have people just cut out porn for a few months and it can make a huge difference. It's a problem. Now, it's not always a problem. I think I have, you know, a lot of people use it and they use it like responsibly. It's like drinking alcohol. Like if you could do it responsibly, that's fine. But if you're going, if, if, it's, if it's interfering with the rest of your life, then maybe cut back a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice. In another post, you described yourself as the sexy mad scientist. I love that. <laughs> and it conjures up the image of you in your lab with all your potions and your lotions. So what is available today, Dr. Killen, to help hold back the hands of time? And personally, if I had my way, father time would be like tied to a bed and he would be left in a deep, dark cave where nobody could find him. <laughs> <laughs> there are, I, I, you know, there are so many things available. It just, it takes knowing kind of where to find them, but there's, we're doing so many cool things with stem cells, with exosomes. And like I said, which are growth factors, which we get inject with peptides, which are things that are, which are like medications essentially that are not medications that you inject at home and there are things that you already have in your own body and you're just giving yourself sort of more doses of them. There's a lot of, you know, really great stuff with lasers and shockwave therapy and energy devices using, using light and heat and sound and, you know, hyperbaric oxygen, ozone, like all of these things, you can use them kind of in combination. So, you know, certainly if you go into my office, I got like a stack of like penis pumps on one side. I've got a stack of red light therapy, you know, helmets on one side. I've got like a whole bunch of skincare on one side. Like I've got a whole lot of things happening but there's always more out there. So I'm always like ready for the next thing as well. Love it. Love it. So let's talk about stem cells. What are they? And what do they do? And how are they being used in skincare? So stem cells are the cells in your body that you have all over every organ has a stem, you know, has stem cells. They're the cells that are responsible for the repair and upkeep of that tissue. And they have two main properties. One is that they can divide so they can replicate. 
The other one is they can differentiate me and they can turn into different types of other cells. And as we get older, what happens is our stem cell supply becomes less and the stem cells that we have are not as active. So they kind of get a little bit lazier, which you know makes sense. If I were to cut my arm, it would take me probably a couple of weeks to heal it versus my 11-year-old son who could cut his arm and it would be totally healed in like 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And that's because he has more and better stem cells than I do. So the stem cells are everywhere. So what we're trying to do with these stem cell procedures is essentially take stem cells from somewhere else in your body, like for instance, your bone marrow or your fat, where stem cells are, are pretty prolific. And we just can move them, you know, for instance, for skin, I can move those stem cells and inject the, the face or the skin. And those cells will then tell the other cells that are already there to become more active. So they send out all these signals and it tells this, your, your fibroblasts in your skin, hey, we need to make more collagen and more elastin, <laughs> more hyaluronic acid. Like, what are we doing? Why are we sitting around? So it's kind of a way to activate that healing system. And we use stem cells for everything from helping to heal, you know, knee pain to erectile dysfunction, to skin health, to growing hair. It's still in its infancy as far as a field and how, you know, being able to use them in different procedures, but, but they can be really helpful and they're, they're generally very safe. Sorry, I have like a tickle. That's okay. That I got in my throat. So how expensive are those procedures? It depends on what you're getting done and what kind of, you know, what type of stem cell or what type of other exosome or product like that. But they're several thousand dollars. It's going to start probably at, you know, two or three thousand dollars and then go up from there. And it's a lot of it's just depending on how we're getting them, what the process is, how difficult it is. These are not inexpensive, but at the same time, you know, if you can repair your knee and all of a sudden you don't need surgery anymore and you could do that with a simple injection. Then, then that's great. Or you can repair your penis and you don't need a, a prosthetic or to take pills. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that, that we're seeing that are, that are pretty fantastic in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. So you have been really forthcoming yourself on your Instagram feed about the products that you are using on patients and that you're using them yourself. You've demonstrated how you use them and there was one I watched where you were injecting around your eyes and around the area next to your nose. Was that the exosomes? That was exosomes. Yeah, exosomes, which are, again, kind of these little growth factor bubbles almost that come from like umbilical cord stem cells in there. They're very regenerative. Yeah, I like to inject my... You know, I, I feel like whatever I'm going to use on patients, I should try myself first. And so I always try things on myself or my husband, who is a reluctant guinea pig because he hates needles, but I'll come after him sometimes because I feel like if I'm going to do it on someone else, I should have tried it on myself to see if it's going to work. And, and sometimes, you know, so that's what I do. I try everything on myself first if I can. So take us into a typical work day for you. Obviously, now you're home at this point. Do you go into the office still to see patients? How... Yeah. How many patients are you able to see during the coronavirus? So I know I have a couple, I have a, in my one practice where I'm the medical director and the owner, I actually have a lot of mid-level providers, like nurse practitioners, physician assistant who actually see the patients. So I don't actually see patients there anymore. I just oversee the mid-level providers and, and, and help with administrative and quality assurance and chart reviews and things like that. So I don't have to go to that office except for, for meetings and such. The only place I actually see patients anymore is the stem cell office, the stem cell clinic up in Park City. And, you know, I'm, I'm only there probably once a week at this point, which is great, actually. I've, I have a lot of other projects that I'm doing. And so my typical day, it's very different every day. Today, for instance, I've done like three podcasts. And then I have, I've got patient, I had some patient calls and consultations that I was doing. 
Those are my dogs barking. <laughs> and then I have a couple of sort of entrepreneurial projects that I'm working on. So I'll meet with my team on those projects. So, you know, I'll, I'll essentially usually I get up around 630 or so I spend the first hour just reading and trying to learn something new. That's my that's my first kind of hour of my day. And what I like to do with that is I like to read a lot on a subject matter, and then be able to kind of digest it and compress it into something that's bite sized that I can then share. So I'll either share it on Instagram, or I'll share it with my friends or I'll text my teammate, you know, I'll, I'll share it with someone. And that sharing is kind of what helps me to remember that information later on. And that's I've been using that since college. It's a great trick is that, you know, get all the information, digest it, compress it, and put it in a, like a little tiny, small bite-sized nugget, whether it's, whether it's a post or a note card. And that's, and then you'll learn it. Like that's how you learn things. So anyway, I do that for the first hour. I exercise. And then I start working around 8.30. And that's either in the office some days, but most often I'm just at home these days. That's great. What is the best part of being in this type of medical specialty? Because we're going to talk about what you did before in the ER, which was obviously very different. Yeah. What I love is I love that I can go out, learn something new, bring it in, like adopt it and, and try it. I love the, the flexibility of that. In traditional medicine, which I'm kind of one leg in traditional medicine and one leg out at this point, like I'm kind of straddling. But in traditional medicine, you know, they say it, it's, it takes about 17 years from when something is discovered and shown to be true before it's actually widely adopted and considered to be standard of care. And 17 years is a very long time. And so I feel like because I'm on this sort of edge, you know, if you will, I can take something, I could do my own research, I can find that it's uh, you know, not dangerous and, and, and potentially helpful. And I can cut that, that time down and start trying it on, on myself, on my patients, and really try to innovate in that way, which is, is so fun. I love learning new things. I would also think, because you mentioned you have an 11-year-old son, I believe you have, is it two daughters? Mm -hmm. I have twin girls that are 12, and I have a boy who's 11. So I would imagine this type of practice would be a lot more family-friendly than having been an ER doc. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's so much, it's so much better. You know, I, I can set my own schedule. Like if I want to, if I need to be at my kid's school and do pickup, or if I need to be, you know, out of town, I travel quite a bit or I did with work as well, then I can, none of my cases are emergencies. So I can always just, you know, I can have them on specific days. I can set my own schedule. I can work from anywhere the rest of the time, whether that, if I'm, because I'm just doing a lot of sort of this kind of thing, podcasts, speaking, team meetings, administrative kind of stuff. And I can do that from, from almost anywhere. So it's been fantastic. I feel very lucky. It's just not something that I think, you know, most doctors don't have this kind of flexibility. And I feel very fortunate that that has worked out for me. Are there any downsides? Are there any parts of, of this particular type of medical practice that suck? Yeah, there are some downsides. I, I miss my team. Like when I was in the ER, you know, I had this amazing team of, of nurses and techs and other doctors, and you just, you all work together in this, this crazy high energy environment. You're saving lives, like you're like literally saving lives. And I, I certainly miss that energy and that, that camaraderie that goes with that. And I also miss, you know, I think that when I first started doing this, there was this perception by a lot of my other doctor friends that I was doing something that was no longer legitimate. Like I felt like I was leaving this very legitimate medical world of emergency medicine and kind of going off into something that was a little bit more fringy, I guess, at the time. This was eight years ago. And I, I had my identity was still very much as an ER doctor. 
And so to walk away from that was was a little bit tricky. And I had to, you know, build up my own <laughs> self-esteem a little bit to, to get through that. But but it worked out. So what made you want to try this specialty out, Dr. Killam? It was mostly that I that I got tired of being an ER doctor. I I so I had I had three kids within two years. I had twins and I had another one 20 months later. And when my son was two weeks old, my husband got a job out of state. And so he moved out of state and was essentially living in California. And so I, and I, would, I had to go back to work at like eight weeks. And I, so I was like a single parent to these three kids who were you know, under the age of two. And then my, my job started at four in the morning. So I had to be at, in the emergency department ready to go at 4am. So as, as you might imagine, I was not sleeping, super stressed out, you know, just caffeinated like more than I should have been. And then what happened is I, I realized that I wasn't enjoying my job, the things, the parts of my job that should have made it all worthwhile, like the big saves and the patients that I, you know, that were super excited about my care and things like that, like that didn't excite me anymore. And when I got to that point and I realized that, you know, my home life wasn't going so well, my work life wasn't going so well, and I was the only person to blame for that. So I needed to, to change things up. And that's why I became interested in learning about, you know, anti-aging medicine, preventative medicine, integrated medicine. They're all kind of same words, the same thing. But that's how it all started. Well, let's flash back even farther, not that long ago, to when you were in college. You went <laughs> to Texas. A very long time ago. <laughs> what was that? It's a very long time ago. Not that long. A little over 20 years. You went to Texas A&M and you got a BS in biomedical science. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated? I had no idea. I just liked science. And so I, I went into biomedical science thinking I like science. It wasn't until towards the end of my junior year that I started thinking about medicine. In fact, everyone else around me was going to go in when they were all pre-med and everyone was like, I'm going to be a doctor. But I just, I didn't think I wanted to do that. But I, then I realized that I didn't, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a research scientist either, which is kind of the other thing people would do. And so I started thinking about medicine as, as something that would be interesting. I was, I was actually, I was working at Yellowstone National Park for a couple of summers during college. And at that point, after my junior year, I was working at Yellowstone. And I realized that I should take the MCAT, which is the test, you know, to, to get into medical school. But I didn't have any like testing materials or courses. Or, this is before the internet, really. So, you know, I didn't know how to study and all of that. So I kind of had to piecemeal together my, my MCAT studying um, while I was working at Yellowstone. But that's when I decided to you know, try to go to medical and see what ha- medical school and see what happened. And, and eventually it ended up working out. Right. So a year later, after you graduated, you did go to medical school. You went to the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. Uh-huh. And then you did your residency in emergency medicine at the University of Arizona. What was your first job after you graduated from your I don't know if you graduate from residency, but after you finished your residency and how did you get it? So my first job straight out of residency was in Austin as an emergency physician. So I went straight from residency into a, a full-time job. And that, you know, I was I was set up well to get that job. It was a pretty competitive job, but I had, you know, I was a chief resident at, at my at my program. I went to a really good program and I had connections in the space. So it was a pretty easy transition to go from residency to that job. Just just from the things I, you know, I've been preparing for it for essentially seven years. What advice can you offer our, our young viewers, our listeners about how to develop those relationships that could be beneficial to them when they do leave school and go into the working world? 
it's so interesting because the relationship relationships really are everything at this point now, right? Like everything I do is because I, I know someone who knows someone who, you know, got me in. I'll tell you a funny story. When I was in college, I had all these really big classes, these big science classes and, you know, 300 people, 400 people, like just huge classes. And I didn't even go to class a lot of the time, but I, I would always just listen and I was a good learner. You know, I could learn on my own. I never, I never interacted during the classes. Like I didn't know any professors. I didn't talk to anyone. I just was like head down, get my good grades, whatever. Then I had one class that was in, like an honors history class. And it was a small group. It was like 20 people in a circle with a professor. And you know, I did my normal thing, head down, didn't talk to anyone. And halfway through the year, my professor pulls me aside and she said, listen, you are not doing well in this class. You're, you know, you're going to get... Because I had like a 4.0 at that point. She said, you're going to get like a B minus if you don't start talking and interacting. Because this, is a, this class is about class interaction and you're not doing it. And so I did, like, I was like, okay, I guess I'll start talking. So I started talking. And eventually at the end of it all, I had to get college, you know, recommendation letters for, for medical school. And I didn't know any professors except for that one professor who made me interact with her. And she ended up writing me an amazing letter of recommendation. But, you know, it, you have to make an effort with the networking, with the talking to people, professors and, and other people in the community, because they really are, they kind of hold the keys to getting into that next level, wherever you are in that path, I think. So did you then become more, I don't know, engaging with your professors in medical school? Or how did you change things up so that when you got ready to move into your post-residency job, you actually had the relationships to help you? That was after college, but it was, it was towards the end of college before I, before I learned that lesson. But once I got to medical school and residency, I realized, I mean, in medical school, it's the same way. Like the people who ended up writing me recommendation letters were the people that I actually spent time really trying, you know, really working hard with and, and talking to and tell me about your family, you know, like just really trying to get to know them because those are the, those, you need those, whether it's letters recommendation or just introduction to friends or introduction to business opportunities or whatever it is. And now that I'm out on my own, you know, I, I have sort of an entrepreneur and I do speaking and I do everything I do is because I've met someone who knows someone, you know, like all the groups I'm in, I do a lot of networking. I do a lot of, I do a lot of events that my husband's like, are you sure that was a work event? Because all you did was go to dinner. And like, it seems like you just had like parties all weekend. I was like, yeah, it was a work event. I was networking. (laughs) (laughs) That's fun. (laughs) But I think you're right. And I mean, it makes sense here. We are, we're doing this interview on LinkedIn, which is, the networking platform yep. that I think is still understandably intimidating for college students to really engage on. So hopefully they will reach out and connect with Dr. Kellen <laughs> and, and me for sure. I would love to have them connect with me. So you wrote a really beautiful tribute to healthcare workers on Instagram and you were honoring them as the front line, on the front lines, they are on the front lines of saving lives of patients who are suffering from from COVID. And you summed up, Dr. Killen, what it was like having been an ER doc for so many years. And I'm just going to read this. You talked about working 10-hour shifts and never stopping to go to the bathroom because somebody always needed you more than your bladder did. <laughs> vomiting covertly in between intubations while you were pregnant with your twins, getting cursed at 
lunged at and threatened all before your morning coffee and then getting spit on, coughed on, peed on, bled on, and just generally shit upon without batting an eye. And it made me wonder why you would want to leave all of that. (laughs) That's true. But there are so many good moments too. But yeah, I mean, the healthcare workers, like the people who are in it, they work so hard and, and people, it's not even just working hard. It's, it's all of those things. They get disrespected. They get, they get, you know, they like body fluids. Like it's just, it's a hard job. And I think that, you know, one thing that I feel like has happened in the last number of years, maybe it's social media, maybe it's not, is that I think that people have started questioning healthcare workers and doctors and things more. And, you know, and they, they feel like sometimes they know more than the doctors do, but I, I just want to reassure people that the people in the hospitals, the ones who are doing this every day, they, they know a ton and they're, they're giving it their all every day. So you mentioned how, I guess you were a young parent at the time that you decided and your husband had moved to California that it was time to check out of the ER world. What was it that inspired you about the regenerative anti-aging field? So at the time, the regenerative part wasn't really part of it at the time, but I was, I was seeing a lot of patients that would come to the emergency department with these chronic medical problems, you know, their, their diabetes out of control, their thyroid out of control, they're overweight, they're tired, like just things that had been going on for a long time, things that I couldn't fix in the five minutes I had with them. And then I became seeing, I saw a lot of those same kind of symptoms in myself, just like tired all the time, not sleeping, stressed out, like, you know, not leading a healthy life. And I, I started realizing that in order to help my patients and help myself, I needed to sort of learn a new set of tools and tricks and learn really how to be healthy. Because that's not something you actually learn much of in medical school. You learn a lot on how to treat diseases and problems, but you don't actually spend a lot of time on how to prevent all of those things from happening. So I became interested in that idea and this idea of longevity and the fact that we actually are living longer and we can live better and, and be healthier longer. And then as I was doing that and kind of open to practice doing some uh, bioidentical hormones and some integrative medicine, I learned about regenerative medicine, which at the time was pretty early, you know, early days, this is seven or eight years ago. And I, I liked the idea of having your body heal itself. So it was kind of a progression, but started just with my own frustration with myself and with our medical system and, and its, its inability to solve that chronic problem. I'm 100% with you. So you went from the ER into more integrative medicine. Is that what you did? Yeah, exactly. So the practice I had, so I I spent about two years while I was, this is when my kids were still little, I was still working in the ER full time, my husband was still gone. But I decided that in my downtime, (laughs) which I didn't really have downtime, but I had to kind of create downtime that I would start learning about this sort of integrative medicine or or functional medicine or anti it's it's, there's like 15 names for the same thing, but essentially like preventing the problem before it starts. So I, I went through a fellowship program, mostly online, occasionally in person, in my downtime while I was still working in the ER. And then eventually I just, I was able to leave the ER and move into that full time. Fantastic. So I have two final time for coffee questions. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? It certainly sounds like that must have been a big struggle, but in particular, maybe you failed at something. Uh. Maybe you didn't. I'm not I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the most important thing is how you kind of got through that difficult period. And if there was a lesson 
that you learned in the process. And the reason that I ask people this question, Dr. Killen, is that I want our young viewers and our young listeners to know that even people like you who are super successful, who've had, by all accounts, an amazing professional life, had really difficult times. And certainly it was very challenging, no doubt, when you were doing your online fellowship and and studying in between being an ER doc with three children under the age of two. But nevertheless, we all have these tough times in our life and you can get through them. Yeah. I have so many that I try to think, pick my, my top one. One thing that comes to mind that I think is that I haven't talked about before, I don't think on, on a podcast is when I was pregnant with my twins, I was still working, you know, still working full time. And towards the end of that, I had to cut back a little bit. Like I was starting to get a lot of contractions. You know, I was like enormous. And I was starting to get little contractions and things and had to cut my hours a little bit. I would still come to my shift, but not do the whole shift maybe. And a lot of my, I had mostly male colleagues and a lot of my colleagues would would say things that, you know, in retrospect, <laughs> were maybe inappropriate talking about how, I don't know why you're having to, to cut back on your hours. You know, the women in Guatemala, they'll work in the fields all day and they're pregnant and then they'll deliver their baby and be back the next day. Like what's going on? Or like I heard one male colleague say something kind of through another person of, you know, I don't know why we hire women because all they're doing, all they do is get pregnant and they have to be out for two months and we have to pick up the slack. And so, <laughs> and there some of these things were just said as jokes, you know, like they're hilarious jokes. But at the same time, I was feeling very inadequate because I couldn't work an entire shift. And I realized that I was having to have my mostly male colleagues pick up the slack. And that was for me as like this perfectionist my whole life was really difficult. And then I would hear these things from these, these people. And I just felt like I was kind of a failure. Like I just felt like I was doing a bad job and it was getting worse because I was getting more pregnant. <laughs> and so that continued for, for several months. I eventually had to, had to quit working a little early to have the babies. And I got back to work and I was, I was pretty down for a little while, you know, just kind of on the whole thing. But what I did was when, when I had my, when, once I was back on my feet, which again, took some time, but once I was back on my feet and I was working back full time and I was, you know, doing a great job and I'm juggling all these things, we had a, a meeting and, you know, it's like an annual review kind of thing. And it was like my boss and his boss and his boss. And it was like a whole group of people, most all men and me. And they, they were like, Oh, you're doing a great job. You know, love it, whatever. Do you have anything for us? And I said, I do. I want to tell you that the way that you guys are treating women and especially pregnant women in this group is atrocious. And you're going to lose out on a lot of good female applicants because you actually are, are, are living in like the 1950s, the way that you think about women. And I said something to the effect of like, you guys all have wives and you all have kids. So why is it okay for you to come to work and have good jobs and have kids, but it's not okay for me to come to work and have a good job and have kids? And I just kind of went off, like everything that I had had hold up in me for like a year. <laughs> I just let it all out. And at the, at the end of it all, they, they seemed appreciative. And then they put me in charge of like some sort of women empowerment part of the company or something. But the point being, it was, it was really hard for me. I'm kind of get like still kind of emotional thinking about it, but it was, it ended up okay in the end. That took a lot of courage on your part to speak truth to power like that. Yeah, I was just fed up though. And I'd seen it at that time. I was strong enough, you know, by the time I was strong enough, it was okay. It would have been really good if I had spoken it when I was not strong enough, <laughs> like when I was going through it, but I wasn't quite ready at that point to do it. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. 
final question. If you could go back to college, back to Texas A&M and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I would tell myself to branch out and spend a little more time in some of the non-medical, non-science kind of disciplines or classes, you know, like take an economics class, take a philosophy class, take, you know, like be a little bit more well-rounded because I was, I was so focused on, on this, you know, getting this degree and taking all these science. I was good at it. And, you know, I, that, that stuff came easily to me, but I think that I would have struggled a bit with like economics or philosophy or something else, but it would have made me a better person and, and like, you know, more interesting conversationalist now <laughs> if I had done that. Well, I wish I had taken more sciences. (laughs) So there, you know, I had wanted to be a veterinarian when I was in high school, but because math and science weren't my strengths, I was like, well, I'm going to play to the, to the liberal arts side. One thing that I will say that I did write that I would recommend highly is that I, I did a lot of sort of experiential learning, if you will. Like I spent two summers working at Yellowstone totally unrelated to anything in my major, but it was great. And I didn't have a good reason for doing it. But you know, when I went to go do those medical school interviews, like they didn't want to talk to me about my science classes. They wanted to know what I was doing at Yellowstone and what hikes I liked. And you know, why did you backpack so much? And like they were, the interviewers were interested in that part of my life more so than anything else. And it was completely unrelated to being a doctor or science or any of that. So you know, I would say do cool things, like do things that are interesting to you because they would probably be interesting to other people as well if they're talking to you. That is such a great point. And I actually just posted on LinkedIn about including an interest section on your resume. Mm. And that's where to put something like that or the hot dog eating contest that you (laughs) won or the favorite IPAs you enjoy or whatever your hobbies are. Yeah. It becomes like a wonderful icebreaker for people who are interviewing you. And it's also showing them some of who you are, your personality. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important. Dr. Kellen, where can our viewers and listeners find you? So I am on LinkedIn, although I don't use it that much anymore, but I do use it occasionally. I'm very active on Instagram, as you mentioned, which is at Dr. Amy B. Killen. And I'm also on YouTube. I think I've got some stuff up there. And I have a web. I have several websites, but the easiest one to access is amykillenmd.com. Excellent. Okay. Well, Dr. Killen, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. What you do is so fascinating and so important to help people optimize their health and their happiness. Thank you so much. This is so fun. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.